It's it. okay. Okay. A little hot. Standing with others in the tension is what we have been talking about. Yes, we've been focusing on the concept of being accountable and invested, but really this whole year has been about how do we remain with each other while things are tense. And specifically, this month we're talking about investing in each other, um, caring for each other, and doing that in a biblical way. So I would draw your attention to one of these pillar verses that you're supposed to know. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a pillar verse that you as a Christian should have your ideology about who you are and who other people are built on this. It's a foundational verse. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not by works so that nobody can boast about it. This is, what, this is how the NLT says it. And the verse is found in Ephesians chapter 2. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for that. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. And I would draw your attention to the wording of that, for we are God's masterpiece. And he has essentially saved us, created us anew in Christ Jesus, so that we can do the things that were planned for us, that he had in place long ago. In other words, we're going back to this concept that we are a piece of art that needs to be restored so that it can fulfill its original purpose, not so that we can fulfill our own purpose and our own thoughts. And that is not a work of our own making by our own power, because it is by grace that we are saved. In other words, nothing that we do makes that happen. Not our works. Nothing that we do makes that happen. In fact, it is a work of God alone. Salvation comes by belief as a free gift of God's grace. And this work, of course, is the work of the entire Godhead. So when I say the Godhead, who I'm speaking about is the being of God. One being in three persons. So those three persons are, of course, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One being, three persons. The work of the entire Godhead. God the Father is, of course, the architect of our salvation. The Son is the builder of our salvation, and the Spirit is that which maintains and grows us in our salvation. So how do we fit into this? Because we are talking about the concept of how we invest in other people. How do we stand with others in the tension? Weird screen to freeze it on, but that's okay. How do we stand with others in the tension? What is the responsibility of the church in this? Well, the responsibility of the church is, of course, to submit to the direction of the Godhead. An easier way of saying that would be to submit to God. This, of course, as we've discussed, is not a work to salvation. In other words, we're not trying to save people because salvation is not accomplished by us, as demonstrated earlier. Let me say the verse again so that you can be better at memorizing it. For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast about it. So it's not a work of salvation when we're helping others. And a lot of Christians think it is. Our purpose in life is to bring people to be saved. Well, guess what? Not true. We do not save people. Salvation is not accomplished by us. And the purpose of the church is a restorative work in the lives of believers and an invitation to the world to join in that process. And we, again, do not really save people. We simply invite them to Christ to be saved. After they become believers, that process doesn't actually stop. 
we continue to invite them to Christ. So at first, we initially invite them to Christ to be saved, but we continue to invite them to Christ. To continue to know him deeper, to love him deeper. And as a good example of this, let's examine the Great Commission. So if you turn to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 8, no, 18, sorry, 18 through 20, it says this. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This concept of making disciples rather than saving people is there. Let's look at Acts. This is addressed in Acts as well. (coughs) Acts 1, 4 through 8. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them. So this is after Jesus had raised from the grave. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water. But in a few days, just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? See, that's what they thought was going to happen. Even after his death, they thought that was going to happen. There was going to be a physical restoration of the kingdom. And he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So you will see that the commission that Christians are given, directly after this Christ ascends into heaven, you will see that the commission that Christians are given is to make disciples. And the way that we do this is in submission to the salvific work of Christ. It's in submission to our Savior and our salvation. Which means that as we are discipling people, we can't have an I'll-take-it-from-here mentality when it comes to God. Now, I want you to think about that because Christians have a tendency to do that, and the church has been told that its responsibility is to do that. In other words, God brought me to a point of salvation. I'll take it from here. No. We do not take it from here. We do not take it from God. The process always relies on God. And we are to submit to him and invite others to partake in Christ. Now this is consistent with what we've been teaching. To imitate me as I imitate Christ. We have to be clear, of course, about what we're imitating. The invitation must be, yes, to the salvation of Christ, but in the power of of the Spirit and the will of the Father. And that invitation is not salvific in nature, it's discipleship in nature. In other words, pick up your cross and follow me. You notice that when Jesus goes to the disciples, who weren't his disciples yet, he doesn't say, come follow me so I can save you. He invites them to be his disciples, to follow him around as a way of life. So the invitation, yes, includes the salvation of Christ, but that is in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the will of the Father. The salvation, of course, is free, as we've discussed again. Who can say it with me? For it is by grace that we are saved through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast about it. The salvation is free, and the will of the Father is certain, but the power here is a reserved power. It has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit if you are going to invite people to imitate you as you imitate Christ. If you are going to invest in people. That has to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what happened in these two circumstances was that Christ said that you would be given his power, which would be accomplished through what? The Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. So it's by the Holy Spirit that we can actually accomplish helping people. When we invite someone to Christ, either to be introduced or to grow, 
This is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, of course, we have to get into this question now of who is the Holy Spirit. So here's a little Holy Spirit 101 breakdown for you. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So again, I said the, the Trinity, or the Godhead, is three individuals, three personalities in one being. Now we have to be careful to make sure that we're not being modalistic and saying that they are three masks that one being puts on. That is not what's being taught. They also are not 33% each of God. Right? You've got different parts of God. No, that is not what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. Yet, it is distinct in nature from the Son and the Father, who are also 100% God. Now, you may be there saying, then, that the Holy Spirit is the Son. No, that's not true either. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. But it is fully God. It is the third person of the Trinity, fully God and being distinct from the Father and Son in person. It is the infinite outworker of the love between the Father and the Son in the Godhead. It has no body, but it is a person. It can be emotional, for instance. It has a will. It has an intent. And it is self-aware. <clears throat> John 14, 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26 says this, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. John 16, 7 says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. Let me say that again. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is the helper which Christ speaks about. The word in Greek for that is paraclete, or parakletos, which means summoned, or called to one side, called to one's aid. One who pleads for another's cause before a judge. A pleader, counsel for the defense, a legal assistant, an advocate. One who pleads another's cause with one as an intercessor. In the widest sense, it is a helper, an aider, and an assistant. Now, the Holy Spirit is described in these verses as the teacher of all things. Those three verses I, I laid out for you. The teacher of all things. Aid in recall of the things taught by Christ. The spirit of truth from the Father. He proclaims the truth about Christ and is submissive to Christ and sent to us by Christ. I would ask you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plans. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. And I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preachings were very plain. And rather than using clever and persuasive speeches... I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I did this so that you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. Yet, when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom. But not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they surely would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his Spirit. For his Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's 
thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so that we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. And when we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can understand what the Spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves cannot be evaluated for others. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach Him? But we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. So let's unpack that. That was a lot. Let's unpack that for a second. Paul uses, according to him, the power of the Holy Spirit in order to speak rather than the rhetoric of human wisdom. And Paul was a smart guy, very schooled, under Gamaliel, a renowned teacher. So he was a smart guy. But according to him, he uses the power of the Spirit to speak rather than the rhetoric of human wisdom. The Holy Spirit revealed to him the mind of God. It revealed to the prophet Isaiah the mind of God. In fact, Paul quotes Isaiah here. And according to Paul, the Holy Spirit is the one who brought the prophet Isaiah's quote to Paul in order to use. So the Holy Spirit then, if it's talking to Isaiah, and it's talking to Paul, and it's talking to all these other people in Scripture, is the author of what? Scripture. The Holy Spirit knows how God thinks because it is God's Spirit. We have God's Spirit as Christians. And for the purpose of knowing, this is why we have God's Spirit, we have God's Spirit for the purpose of knowing what is freely available to us, what we are able to partake in as believers. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to teach us this revelation is not done by using words that come from human wisdom or man's rhetoric. We are supposed to use words in order to teach others that are inspired. We are to use words that are inspired, that are being actively given by the Spirit to explain spiritual things. We can understand these words now because in the Spirit we have the mind of Christ. And let us remember what Christ said about the Holy Spirit, that he is the teacher of all things, that he aids in the recall of all things that, that Christ has taught, that he's the spirit of truth from the Father, that he proclaims the truth about Christ, that he's submissive to Christ and sent to us by Christ. So what are spiritual things? When it says the Holy Spirit talks about spiritual things, what are spiritual things? Paul claims that the Holy Spirit will speak for him in these matters. Let's examine Paul's claim against his own writings. This is what Paul says in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of humanity who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that humans are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let's examine the words of the Psalter or Psalms. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. For the record, interesting note here. The Jews did not believe that the earth was flat. 
yep, they were on to something. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament speak of spiritual things and the glory of God. But Paul tells us that it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us about the spiritual things, right? And Jesus says that the Holy Spirit teaches us about all things. So what we have here in these verses is God's design being used by the Holy Spirit to teach men about God. It's the same path of the sun that is talked about in Psalm 19, which is a material thing that was designed to speak of an immaterial thing. And you guys got to stick with me. We're getting into what we call high theology here, okay? It is something that is spiritual being spoken of by something that is material. Material means, for us in this culture, the scientific world. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired these words and inspired creation in order to speak of who God is. We are meant to, be, to understand by material things the spiritual things. And Paul goes so far as to say that when we don't, we are then guilty before God because the weight of nature's testimony is enough, is strong enough to condemn us. That's what's said in Romans 1, right? That people are condemned because the weight of nature itself screams to them of the existence of God. And who screams about the existence of God according to Jesus? The Holy Spirit. Nature testifies by the authorship of the Godhead, including the power of the Holy Spirit. All this is to say that all subject matter is usable by the Holy Spirit to teach spiritual truths. And the Holy Spirit is always teaching us. There are not some areas where it's teaching us and some areas where it isn't. The Psalter's use of the steadiness and predictability of something as taken for granted as night and day, for instance, is a message from God. That's what's said in Psalms. Even the passage of the sun from night to day, day to night, is a message from God to teach us about the spiritual things. And that is the plan, the voice, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit at work. It's a testimony about God's faithfulness. And today we have many brash scientists, of course, who would say that there is a division between the material world and its spiritual application, going so far as to say that the spiritual world is just made up by material creatures. In other words, that we have imagined God. Those scientists, they teach that Christians are just superstitious, that we have made God up in our minds to cope with hard-to-process events in our life. And therefore, who cares about these things? Who cares about the Holy Spirit? I care about the tangible Christianity. And so we'll focus on things like our Bible and about Jesus, if we can even justify that he lived historically. But God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, meh. But traditionally, God's ability to speak truth in all facets of life has not been held back by appreciation for the material world. In fact, it is by appreciation for the material world as the inspiration of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, to speak for God himself, that we got a large portion of our scientists. Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus. You guys ever heard that name? He put forward the first mathematically-based system of planets that went around the sun. He was a person who believed in God. Francis Bacon, Sir Francis Bacon, a philosopher who's known for establishing the scientific method, believed. Johannes Kepler, brilliant mathematician and astronomer. Early work on light was done by him and established the laws of planetary motion about the sun. Galileo, same thing. Rene Descartes, same thing. Blaise Pascal, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, one of the founders and key early members of the Royal Society, uh, the concept of Boyle's law, like the laws of gases, that was defined by Robert Boyle. 
Same thing. Michael Faraday. We have something called a Faraday cage nowadays. He dealt with uh, electricity and things like that. Gregory Mendel, early work in DNA. Uh, Kelvin, William Thomas Thompson Kelvin, the creator of the Kelvin timeline in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> I'm kidding, that's not true. Um, <coughs> his work covered many areas of physics. He was said to have more letters after his name than anyone else in the Commonwealth. And then, of course, we have Albert Einstein. And you'll say, wait, Albert Einstein wasn't a Christian. And you know what? You're right. Albert Einstein wasn't a Christian, but he did believe that there was a divine being that inspired nature. And this is what he said. I want to know how God created this world. I'm not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. Everything else is just details. That's what Albert Einstein said. So this concept that we have been duped into believing in our society that, classically speaking, of course, science and spirituality, they can't mix with each other, and therefore we can't have a holistic approach to understanding the world, not traditionally the thought process. That's a new lie that's been being created. And unfortunately, we live in this world, a world that says the Bible, its Savior, its God, and its Spirit can only speak to spiritual matters. But this is not the traditional view of the world, and this is not the biblical view. And according to Paul, the Holy Spirit and his revelation, which we call the Bible, can teach us about spiritual things and material things. Echoing Jesus' sentiment, he will take it a step further. Paul takes it a step further, and he says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Now listen to this. And is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. And this is the view of the entire narrative of the Holy Spirit and his scripture. For instance, he reveals this to Solomon in Proverbs 1. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline and to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives. We're not just talking about spiritual lives. Successful lives to help them do what is right and just and fair. And these Proverbs will give insight to the simple Knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these proverbs and become even wiser. Let those with understanding receive guidance by exploring the meaning of these proverbs and parables. The words of the wise and their riddles. And this is another core verse for you to remember. A column verse. Okay? Verse 7 of chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fear of the Lord, in other words, acknowledging who God is, that you do not even come close to being ontologically similar to God, that he is a creature that is beyond being called a creature. And you are dust compared to him. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. Now you might say, wow, that is real heavy. How does that even work? Well, here's how it works. If you don't fear the Lord, in other words, you don't understand your ontological nature in comparison to him, then what are you left with? You are left with scientific materialism. In other words, you are just something that evolved in a material world out of nothing. And if you are something that just evolved in a material world out of nothing, then what does it matter what you do? And what meaning does any of that have in the world? How can you know anything if there is nothing to judge anything against? All of a sudden, 
you are not capable of knowing what is right and what's wrong because knowledge is arbitrary without God. So anybody who says, oh, well, this is just, this is just spiritual gobbledygook, you haven't thought it through, have you? Because you take an ultimate out of the equation and you are left as arbitrary. And why should space dust that has evolved over time care what happens to it or anyone else? What does love mean? Oh, it's just a chemical reaction. What does sex mean? It's just an urge. What does gender mean? It's just an idea. All of a sudden, how do we define people? How do we define ourselves? How do we answer the questions of what's right and what's wrong? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what is moral and good? And if I can't answer those questions, how can I be disciplined? And if I can't be disciplined, how can I live in this world? You want to know why these scientists are so famous? Because fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge. The purpose of the Proverbs is to teach how to live in the real, material, non-spiritual world. Let's be clear about that. When he says this is so that you can live correctly, it's not so you can live correctly in church. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. The opposite of this, according to the Proverbs, is someone who hates the practical application of knowledge and to have a disciplined life. With all of this considered, then, we have to approach. You're, you've probably been sitting there being like, why are you talking about all this? Because we're talking about investing in other people. And with all of this considered, we then have to approach our investment in others with certain presuppositions. Presuppositions are to presuppose, to make rules up before we go. So here are the presuppositions. To help others is to conform to the work of that which teaches truth, which is, of course, the Holy Spirit and his revelation of the truth in scriptures. A lack of fear of God, presupposition number two. A lack of fear of God, a hatred for practical or useful knowledge, and a hatred for that usefulness to have consistent application or discipline is to close the door to any truth and any real knowledge. You can't help somebody who refuses to fear God. This knowledge of God is not relegated. It's not a relegated knowledge locked away for just spiritual people. It touches all areas of one's life. The Holy Spirit is holistic in his scope and application. Those are the three presuppositions that you need in order to truly invest in somebody. A large and difficult barrier, of course, to a Christian's effectiveness in helping another person, whether that person is Christian or not, is a lack of high esteem and regard and respect for the role of the Holy Spirit in the care of people. The Holy Spirit is good. And yet, we know so little about him. And that's not because it's not revealed. It's because we don't focus on him because we choose to operate in a material world and buy into the idea that these things are separated from each other. We focus on the Son of God, and we focus on the Father, but for some reason, we turn a blind eye to the truth of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives and his power in the life of making people into disciples of Christ. We make Jesus or the Father into our comforter, into our comforter. We make Jesus or the Father 
into the paraclete. But whose role is that? It's the role of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think it's interesting that Jesus said, it's good for me to leave. Because if I don't leave, then he will not come to you. Yet, where do we keep Jesus? Jesus is in our hearts. Not the Holy Spirit. Is that biblical? Something's wrong with that. And the truth is that not only are we not alone when we reach out to a person in need, but we're not new to the game. Or rather, we are new to the game. Not only are we not alone when we reach out to a person in need, but we are very new to the game. The very fact that you can call a person to God is a work of the Holy Spirit through you. And the Holy Spirit has been stacking the deck in God's favor since before creation even took place. The Bible taught you about Christ, right? It's the Bible that taught you about Christ. Now, you could say it was Christ who taught us about Christ and his manifestation, but you weren't here 2,000 years ago. You didn't watch a video of Christ or anything like that. It was the Bible that taught you about Christ. And the scripture says that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So who taught you about Christ? The Holy Spirit. The material world that you use as examples of Christ, his deity, his historicity, were ensured by the Holy Spirit. As we talked about before, all nature speaks to who God is to the point where man can be condemned on that alone. The Christian love that you example in a fallen world is not based on the love of Christ in terms of that's where it comes from. Yes, Christ exampled that. Yes. But we do it not of our own, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet, we are so afraid to rely on the Holy Spirit's power in our care of others. We limit the scope of his care by allowing his words to only speak of spiritual things. And then we outsource the rest of that care in matters of finance and mental health and addiction. The Holy Spirit can speak to things that you talk about in church. He can't possibly speak to mental health. We choose our own words rather than his when we're talking to people about who God is when we're talking to people about these things in their life that are important, like I said, mental health and addiction and finances and issues with family, we choose our own words. Not even Jesus did that. When Jesus was faced with temptation, after going into the desert for 40 days, when he was emaciated, Jesus spoke the words that were inspired by who? The Holy Spirit. Yet, when we face other religions, other beliefs, and worldviews, we act like we're ashamed of the Spirit's inspired words. And rather than quote the scriptures, we stumble through our own anecdotal experiences and the works of non-inspired authors. Authors of Comics, authors of books, authors of movies, authors of television, authors of music, especially music. We like to quote music. Oh, this song really inspired me. I remember the words of this song. We do that to touch the lives of those who are in need of a holistic care. And sure, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, except when it comes to addiction, except when it comes to mental health issues and financial issues and marital issues and social justice issues. And yes, the scripture is God-breathed and 
useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that, the thir- so that the servant of God may be fully equipped for every good work, except, of course, the ones that aren't spiritual, like being a good employee or being a good spiritual leader or being a good citizen or being good with finances or being a good student. See, our tendency is to hide the art from the artist. But the truth is that this is a flaccid, impotent, arrogant, amateurish approach to caring for people. To meet a person's needs, we need to remember that we are not seeking to free them, to create themselves. Instead, we are seeking to restore them to their initial intended glory. And how are we to do this if we consistently hide them from the artist? In Christ, we see the work of God finished and implemented, but the truth is that the Spirit has been at work in creation from the beginning. It has been inspiring people to record God's revelation. It has been inspiring nature to point to God. It has been empowering people to act with God's power. And when Christ came, the Holy Spirit's work, before Christ, the Holy Spirit's work didn't finish because Christ came. In fact, it was at work, we're doing high theology here, guys, stay with me, it was at work in the life of Jesus Christ himself. It was the very words of the Spirit which poured from Jesus' mouth when he was tempted by Satan, when he stood against the Pharisees, and he quotes Moses, when he was accused. It was the words of Holy Spirit that Christ quoted in his last moments on the cross. It was not the words of the person, the second person of the Trinity, which says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the words of the third person of the Trinity that the second person was quoting. And if you follow those words out, and you look at what Jesus was actually saying, it's the beginning of a psalm, which starts off in that, way. Why have you forsaken me? But ends in praise of God. And when Christ left this earth, he did so so that we might be able to have that active relationship with the Spirit that he had as well. So remember the words of John, which, by the way, are inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit. Christ said in John, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And this is not to say that the Holy Spirit was not present or active, clearly he was, but not in the way that he had always intended since Adam. There is a new way of activity that is now able for us to have, that is not impeded by sin because Christ paid the penalty for that sin And now we have received the Holy Spirit. We have an active relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in tandem with Christ. Remember 1 Corinthians. What does it say in verse 14? But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's Spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. And as we go on, he says, Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach them? Because these are the thoughts of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the mind, the thoughts of God and the mind of Christ. We understand these things because we have the mind of Christ now. That's what Paul says. The Holy Spirit is in tandem with Christ. It is a member of the Godhead in its being. As a person, it is God's Spirit knowing his very thoughts. As a person, it is the faculties of the Son being his very mind. And just as the Spirit is in tandem with Christ, and he filled the man Jesus with the very thoughts of the Father, he was also the very mind of Christ. 
And because we are Christ's body, again, high theology, because we are Christ's body, therefore we too are to be filled with his spirit. Not of ourselves, but by the very grace of God, as was his design and his intent out of his love for us. And therefore, as Paul says, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an act of submission. Listen to Paul's words again in Ephesians 5. Be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days, not just the spiritual ones. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Note three things. The filling of the Holy Spirit is a choice on our parts to accept it. The Spirit is not a demon. It does not possess us. It's a choice. Allowing ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to act with care. What does he say? That if you do this, you will live the way that you're supposed to live. It's to act with care. And this means our minds have to be on. It's not an esoteric, mystical experience any more than pouring water into a cup is. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we actively choose to open ourselves up to him. There's no mumbo-jumbo to it. There's no aligning your chakras. When we do this, the result is that we live wisely, and our time will be useful, and the outward action of such a filling is akin to making music to God in our hearts, to acting in a tandem harmony with God. It creates a song of praise. To be filled with the Spirit is to actively open the gates of your mind to Him and allow them, allow that to permeate down to your actions. And this is in direct contrast to the error of Romans 1. What was the error in Romans 1? They suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. That was the error in Romans 1. Notice the wording here. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they held the truth under the waters of unrighteous behavior so that they wouldn't have to look at the truth anymore. To be filled with the Spirit is in direct contrast to this action. We are to not hold back the truth of God, but rather allow it to consume us. Let it fill us to the point where it is overflowing and flowing over our walls. We do this by giving in to the inclinations of our redeemed nature rather than holding the truth about God underneath the waters of our unrighteous and sinful behaviors. And this is where the power of the Spirit can be best seen when we let God in instead of holding Him out. And when we let God in, we begin then to act like Christ naturally. In other words, we don't need self-help books. We don't need 12-step programs and better self-esteem and higher education and more money and casual sex and more me time or even meaningful relationships, even the good ones, like family, children, spouses. We don't need those things to fill up the hole that's in our hearts because God will do that for us and then those good things will just come naturally. We don't need anything else. Note that not all things, of course, on my list are necessarily negative. But alone, like family, you can't put that weight on your family. Your family doesn't have the ability to constitute a holistic answer. And when you try to do that, it destroys the family. What we need is a willingness to submit in the Spirit of God, and it's by His power that our lives will change. Yet for some reason, Christians would rather speak to the saving power of secular help or humanistic reason than to care for people by introducing them to the mind of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And unfortunately, this is because 
Too many Christians do not have a holistic relationship with God. They only have a relationship with two persons in the Trinity. To them, the Holy Spirit is not the mind of Christ. What do you need the mind of Christ for? You have Christ. And he's not the thoughts of God, the Father. What do you need the thoughts of the Father for? You have the Father. To them, he's just a spirit. And the great spirit has no substantial place in a material reality. And if you don't know how to share your faith, pay attention. If you don't know how to share your faith, to a person who's in need. Then what do you do? Well, normally what happens is people freak out about it until they are educated enough or comfortable with themselves enough or they simply remain quiet enough until someone else speaks up. If we don't believe that we have the strength to stand for what is right and moral by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what do we do? Well, normally, we appeal to a social grouping or a political party or a public figure who has similar interests to do that for us. If we don't know how to teach someone about their ontological nature as image bearers of God, as human beings, then what do we do for them? Well, we can give them psychological theories and counselors to better help them know their truths, right? And if we find someone who is struggling with unwanted behaviors, but we don't want to talk to them through the power of the Holy Spirit, then at least, at least we can give them an intervention. At least we can get them into a 12-step program. We couldn't possibly share our faith, could we? We couldn't possibly share our faith with someone by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's too scary for us to allow the very person who gave the words to Moses before Pharaoh and Elijah before the prophet hordes of the false god, Baal, or before Daniel as he stood before the kings and the lions. We couldn't possibly allow him to speak through us. What would we even say if we were to do that? We couldn't possibly stand for morality on the basis of the revealed words of Scripture, could we? We couldn't possibly call something wrong because, not because of some rhetoric or some earthly wisdom, but how about because God calls it wrong? How would we possibly be able to stand up? We couldn't possibly teach someone who they are by speaking what God has revealed about them. Because what would that say about us? We couldn't possibly call addictions or unwanted behaviors spiritual issues rather than epigenetic issues. We couldn't possibly command repentance. We couldn't possibly call alcoholism and pornography addiction a worship issue. Could we? As the Spirit defines it? Because that would make us superstitious. I would suggest to you that if you have never been bold for Christ beyond the reach of your personal spiritual journey, then you are probably not incredibly effective in helping others in a holistic way. And the answer to all of our pursuits, categories, tests, questions, and disciplines is not ourself, and it's not our own power. It is a grace Powered relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, by his work that heals us, by his foolishness that saves us, not just our spirituality, our whole selves. And that is the very message of the Spirit of God. And if you want to help someone get behind that message, And do that in your own lives. And then preach that message. Let's be clear. The Spirit, through Paul, says this in Romans 1.16. For I am not, pillar verse, right? For I am not ashamed 
of the gospel of Christ, the good news about Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And these these are the words of the Spirit through Paul. These are the words of the Spirit through Paul. The gospel of Christ is the Spirit's message, as we know. And Paul was not ashamed. He called it the very power of God at work. Are you ashamed? The message here is twofold. We have to demonstrate our submission in our own lives, and we have to call others to imitate that submission in their lives. And if you're not doing either part, then you will not be living a life that is worthy of your calling to salvation. And if you want to help others and invest in them properly, then you need to heed your own call before you call them to imitate you as you imitate Christ. So you should do this. You should know God by the power of his spirit. Not by your own reason, not by your own rhetoric, but by the power of his spirit. And what does that look like? Read his words. Pray through him and connect to his body, which is the church. Willingly submit. That means learn his words and allow them to fill your thoughts. Instead of filling your thoughts with the rhetoric of some psychologist or self-help guru or some other belief system. Protect your thoughts from things that would try to take the place of God. And then boldly follow. That means call people to believe in Christ. Call people to repent. We're so afraid of calling people to repent. I couldn't possibly tell you that you're wrong. Well, guess what? That's not me telling you that you're wrong. If you have sin in your life and you are told to repent, that's God. Those are the words of Christ. Those are the words of the scripture. That is by the power of the spirit. And then we call people to follow. And that's the holistic way that we should behave. Do not limit the scope of the care of the Holy Spirit by only allowing his words to speak to spiritual things. Do not outsource the care of God's people in matters of finance and mental health and addiction. This isn't to say that we can't receive help, of course, where we can get it, but this secular help is always to be in addition to. It's not to be the the default. It's not to be the, the replacement of. Choose God's words rather than our own. Remember, Christ did that. Face other religions, other beliefs, other worldviews with boldness and assuredness of the Spirit's inspired words. You don't know what to say when somebody comes at you from another belief system? So? The Scripture says that the power of the Spirit will speak through you. You won't be able to do that if you're not filling yourself with the Holy Spirit. We need to diminish our own anecdotal experiences. We need to play them down. We need to diminish the works of non-inspired authors. We need to believe that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation, even from things like addiction and mental health and financial issues, and marital issues, and social justice issues. We, know, we need to know that the scripture is God-breathed. We need to know that it came from God. And therefore, we need to believe that it is useful for teaching, and rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person who follows God will be fully equipped for every situation. Do you believe that? Because when you come at me and say, I don't know how to do this, I'm not equipped for it. 
We can't hide the art from the artist, but instead we need to introduce the art to his maker. Next week, yep, we're there. Next week, we're going to be talking about how we can help each other and exemplify the patience that we're supposed to have when we don't see any returns, when we don't have gain that comes from it. But this week, we focus on the fact that we are to help people in the power of the Spirit and not in ourselves. So here are my questions for you. By what power have you been helping others? What limits are you guilty of placing on the scope of the Holy Spirit's power in your life and those whose lives you are trying to help? Have you been ashamed of the gospel of Christ and God's power unto salvation? Have you fully accepted in meaningful reality that God's power has nothing that it isn't capable of affecting? And lastly, have you allowed the Spirit to fill you? Go talk. <laughs>